0: Well, thank you very much for uh, the invitation, sorry, for the uh, slow transition. Um, always fun to be back here, having begun my clinical career as night float on the Bigelow Service with Joe Pearlberg Perl- Joe here, and, uh, and great to be back with uh, Dr. Chabner, who taught us uh, all of oncology. So I'm going to um, talk about a couple things today, but I'll start with uh, uh, clonal hematopoiesis, or, Uh, Origins of Blood Cancer, which to link to the previous talk is uh, one of the complications or challenges of interpreting circulating tumor DNA since blood cells acquire somatic mutations and release them all the time into the uh, circulation uh, at enormous concentrations, which is a confounder for some of those assays. So um, my uh, disclosures, um, uh, not directly related to, to what I'll talk about, the data I'll present today. So if we think about um, how cancer develops and and the sequencing studies that have been ongoing over the past uh, 10 or 20 years, we know that essentially all human malignancies are caused by the sequential acquisition of multiple mutations, and only on very rare circumstances is a full-blown malignancy caused by a single genetic event. And so if there are multiple sequential genetic events, then one of the... um, Conclusions you could draw from that is that there may be many many times or many uh, orders of magnitude More instances of an initial mutation leading to a clonal expansion than there are instances of full-blown malignancies So if we think about these as all of our hematopoietic stem cells and then one of those uh, Getting a mutation leading to a clonal expansion one of those cells getting a second mutation leading to clonal expansion One of those getting another mutation. So there may be many many cases Uh, of those initial clonal expansions, just like we have many more cases of colonic polyps than we do of metastatic colon cancer. And uh, the other conclusion you can draw is that when we have somebody who ultimately develops leukemia, it's a very complicated bone marrow where... Patients have five mutations, four mutations, three, or or individual stem cells have five, four, three, two, one mutations. And when we achieve a remission, that can mean many different things. It could mean all of the mutations are gone. It could mean just the biggest clone with all the mutations is gone. And that has uh, profound implications for uh, relapse disease. So we first undertook trying to find these initial clonal expansions uh, using exome sequencing data. um, And... We actually worked with uh, one of the, our MGH college, David Altshuler, who was at that time really on the upswing of doing very, very large scale exome sequencing studies to study germline predisposition to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other diseases. But to the advantage of people who study the blood, essentially all uh, studies for germline predisposition to any disease are done with blood samples. It's the easiest uh, DNA to get from an individual. So we could look at large numbers of exome sequencing data. We've now looked at way over 100,000 individuals with similar results. And we look specifically for the mutations that recurrently happen in, um, in hematologic malignancies. So the particular mutations that we see in blood cancers, not, uh, not an unbiased screen. And those mutations, it turns out, are very rare in young individuals. Under the age of 40, we essentially never detected that. But by the age of 70, we found about 10% of everybody had one of the mutations that we actually see recurrently in acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very aggressive disease. Um, uh, So surprised that huge fraction of the uh, population has these mutations in their blood. And they're present at a large fraction of the cells. On average, about 20% of all the circulating blood cells have one of these mutated cells in, in one of these cases. So unlike a colonic polyp, which is a tiny percentage of the colon, this is accounting for uh, 20% of the whole organ. Um, and uh, and these these uh, individuals were unselected for a hematologic phenotype. So is this uh, seem a a crazy result. Well, one way to think about it is to uh, think about the mutation rate. So a really elegant study from Tim Lay's group at WashU did uh, sequencing of individual colonies of hematopoietic cells and estimated that we get about one exonic mutation per decade of life per hematopoietic stem cell. So every one of our stem cells is undergoing mutations throughout our life, and uh, some of those mutations are going to happen in the exome, and about uh, uh, once per decade, each of those stem cells will get a, a mutation in, in the coding sequence. And we've not really had clear ideas of the num- true number of hematopoietic stem cells, but really large sequencing studies of an individual doing many, many genomes from a single individual from the Sanger Center... Um, Uh, found that we have probably about 50 to 100,000 or 50 to 200,000 true hematopoietic stem cells uh, per individual. So with that mass, we have about 25 to 100 mutations in each of our genes in at least one hematopoietic stem cell by the age of 70. So we are undergoing pretty much a saturation mutagenesis screen of our exome, uh, and all of us over the course of our lifespan, And some of those mutations with the microenvironment are going to lead to a clonal expansion. But all of us are going to have mutations in essentially all of our genes uh, during our lifetime. The genes that turn out to be most frequently mutated are epigenetic regulators, primarily DNMT3A, TET2, and ASXL1, DNMT3A and TET2 being uh, regulators of DNA methylation. Exactly why those mutations lead to a clonal expansion of hematopoietic stem cells is not Still entirely clear, though we know a lot about uh, their specific epigenetic targets. And consistent with these being the first step on the way to getting a full-blown malignancy, almost all these individuals just had one mutation. And that's very different from sequencing studies of myelodysplastic syndrome, acute myeloid leukemia, where many, many people, uh, many, many mutations are, um, say, three to five or three to six mutations in in each uh, individual malignancy. And individuals who have one of these mutations uh, have clonal hematopoiesis, have um, about a tenfold increased risk of getting a blood cancer. We know a lot more now about how we can risk stratify these patients if the clones are larger, if there are multiple mutations in an individual, if there are particular genes that are mutated like P53 and some of the splicing factors. Um, uh, those individuals have a much greater risk of getting leukemia, uh, which can be a 50 to 100 fold increased risk of leukemia. Just as the discussion uh, in the last question of the previous session, we can detect somebody who has a 100 fold increased risk of leukemia, but we don't have a therapy yet to mitigate that risk, uh, particularly at the pre malignant stage. And so there's certainly no indication for population screening to detect. Those at risk for leukemia, um, but uh, um, but at least it's a starting point for identifying those at risk and and uh, and looking for therapies that would um, would decrease that risk. So, this has been a very robust field with uh, findings from many investigators with extremely concordant findings. Um, uh, now, many groups from all over the world have uh, very similar findings. Same genes are mutated, same age associations, same uh, risk of hematologic malignancies. So, uh, so this has been a very satisfying field in that uh, it's, um, it's become very robust and, and large scale very quickly. One of the things that's come from these additional studies is not surprising, but the deeper you sequence, the more clonal hematopoiesis you find. So as I mentioned, all our genes are going to get mutated during the course of our lifetime. So if we do super deep sequencing with error-corrected barcoding, we'll find evidence of TET2 or DNMT3A mutations in all of us eventually as we age. Um, If we use targeted sequencing, much like uh, at the Brigham or uh, MGH we do for our leukemia patients, we'll find it in a very large fraction of individuals. Exome sequencing data, a little bit less sensitive in genome sequencing with lower depth, a little bit less than that. So um, the prevalence of clonal hematopoiesis depends entirely on how deep you sequence. So given the... um, uh, the range of how you could define such a state and the clinical impact which I'll talk more about of having this we took a first step uh, trying to define this as an as an entity and first defining it is not having morphologic evidence of a, of an actual malignancy and that was important because when we first described this there would be pathologists who'd say oh well, this patient has some anemia and they have a dnmt3a mutation Maybe we should say this patient has MDS, but MDS is a disease with a very poor prognosis, and these mutations by themselves do not uh, make the diagnosis. Um, So we set a a threshold for the um, amount of the mutation that needs to be present, the variant allele fraction, uh, to define this as an entity. And, and uh, we cut it off at a varying allele fraction of 2%, which was our, our threshold in exome sequencing data. Turns out that probably most of the clinical sequelae happen for even larger clones. So we might even want to increase that in the future. And the odds of progression with this threshold are about 0.5 to 1% per year, which is similar to MGUS or other pre-malignant states. And the uh, the other uh, initial finding that we had from the beginning was, and that's been a, a very recurrent finding, is that that individuals with CHIP, with uh, this ent- entity, um, have an increased overall mortality uh, by a fairly large fraction, about a forty percent increased risk of dying of all causes. And uh, despite our focus on on hematologic malignancies, it's it's hard to shift overall survival on the basis of uh, MDS or AML since they're relatively rare diseases. Um, Moreover, when we looked at uh, all cancer mortality in these data sets, um, we didn't see a big shift either. So we couldn't explain a major shift in overall mortality on the basis of of heme malignancies or cancer in general. But what we did find, uh, much to our surprise, was that CHIP was associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease with both increased risk of myocardial infarction and ischemic stroke. With a pretty substantial hazard ratio um, as a frame of reference in these data sets and others, the hazard ratio for hypertension or hypercholesterolemia is about 1.6, 1.8. So this is a big risk compared to um, other the Framingham risk factors. And this is uh, these are uh, uh, regression models correcting for all the those known Framingham risk factors. This uh, initial observation was really searching around our data, uh, trying to find an explanation for the uh, shift in overall survival. So we went on to repeat this in um, four different uh, additional cohorts. These are two prospective cohorts. So blood samples drawn at the beginning of the study uh, that we sequenced, those patients' Uh, were observed for a number of years. Some had heart attacks, some didn't. And we looked at the uh, the prevalence of CHIP in those uh, who subsequently developed a um, heart attack and those who didn't. And uh, and we replicated our initial findings almost exactly with a hazard ratio of 1.9 uh, uh, for each of those studies um, and, uh, and both statistically significant. Even in those with early onset MI in two additional cohorts, the odds ratio in those was about four, so an even greater risk for uh, those uh, in their 40s who had a heart attack. Um, and there's been uh, a number of other studies since then. Perhaps most uh, notably, there was a, um, an analysis of the UK Biobank that came out just last week and I think um, presented at the American Heart Association last week uh, that in an additional 50,000 individuals that this uh, replicated very robustly. Um, so just showing that genetic association between chip and, um, cardiovascular disease doesn't prove causality. And in fact, there'd be a lot of reasons to think it might not be causal. Maybe we just, chip is just a really good marker of aging and cardiovascular disease, is a defining disease of, of aging. Um, so we have been working to, um, explore this in an experimental system where we can specifically interrogate the effect of mutations in the blood. And the reason to think that this isn't completely crazy is that uh, obviously cardiovascular disease is mediated by macrophages and monocytes and neutrophils and platelets, which are all cells that will be mutated uh, in these individuals. They'll have somatic mutations in all their terminally differentiated lineages in addition to the hematopoietic stem cells. Um, And If there's a mutation in an epigenetic regulator, it will change the expression of a number of genes, change response to stimuli, and so potentially um, could behave abnormally in the setting of an atherosclerotic plaque. So in mice, it's uh, not possible to study uh, atherosclerosis in completely wild-type mice. They don't get any atherosclerosis during their lifespan. But if you knock out their LDL receptor, they get sky-high cholesterols, particularly when fed a high-fat diet. They do develop atherosclerosis with an attractable experimental time frame. And you can ask the question through transplant studies of if you have, if you transplant in wild type cells or mutant cells, do the mutant cells alter the outcome in terms of atherosclerosis? So we have asked this first with TET 2, but have since done uh, a number of other uh, mutations, as have other labs. And the findings have been quite consistent that um, if you have, this is the descending aorta. These are the plaques, the uh, lipid-laden macrophages stained with oil red O. So in mice with control, wild-type blood cells get a little bit of atherosclerosis at this time point. If the blood cells have heterozygous or homozygous knockout of TET2, those lesions are much bigger. And uh, that's, uh, again, True at many time points in these studies, many different, uh, or, or at least uh, three or f- so different uh, blood genotypes uh, leading to accelerated atherosclerosis in vivo. Now, uh, how could this, or w- what are the mediators of this? The, the first in, uh, clues have come from RNA sequencing studies of TET2 uh, macrophages. We could show in the, in the model system that the myeloid cells were mediating this effect. And if you look at tattoo mutant macrophages and what genes they express, they have a number of genes that are aberrantly expressed. And among them are inflammatory cytokines, um, including uh, interleukin 1 beta um, and and some of the studies interleukin 6, uh, which are um, uh, cytokines, chemokines that have been implicated in uh, atherosclerosis previously in a variety of, of mouse models. And this has been corroborated by a couple clinical findings, one of which is that there was a very large uh, clinical trial of an IL-1 beta antagonist called canakinumab by Novartis, a study called the Canto study. It was a 10,000 person randomized controlled clinical trial. And uh, the individuals who received the IL-1 beta blockade actually had a decreased risk of cardiovascular events compared to the placebo. And when they went back and sequenced the individuals with CHIP had a major benefit from the IL-1 beta blockade and those without did not have a major benefit. The uh, second major clue uh, is really elegant and was uh, just presented at the American Heart Association, which is that in large-scale genetic studies, the increased risk of cardiovascular disease in those with CHIP, I don't even have a slide for this yet, um, is mitigated in individuals who have germline polymorphisms in the IL-6 receptor. So one of the key inflammatory mediators, it's often uh, elevated with IL-1 beta. And so uh, really providing elegant genetic evidence that um, uh, that the risk of cardiovascular disease from CHIP is meted by these inflammatory cytokines. And that's actually work that was done here by St. Catharicin and Preeti Natarajran. So this is how we... Uh, Uh, think about this now is that there are mutations in a stem cell that lead to a clonal population of cells. Those cells differentiate into all the terminally differentiated blood cells, even in some cases lymphocytes. Um, And these mutant cells can behave abnormally, including releasing high levels of inflammatory cytokines, leading to atherosclerosis, in other studies, in the setting of heart failure or uh, aortic stenosis, CHIP is associated with an increased overall mor- uh, increased mortality uh, in that uh, setting as well. So, a, a major predictor of um, of poor outcome. One other setting that we think about a lot in cancer is therapy-related malignancies. So patients with solid tumors who get chemotherapy or radiation who may go on to get a therapy-related MDS or AML. Um, We've looked at this in the setting of lymphomas. In patients who had uh, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma get chemotherapy and then undergo an autologous stem cell transplant, those individuals are at a particularly high rate of getting a therapy-related malignancy. And we asked whether the presence of CHIP at the time of autologous stem cell transplant would predict uh, getting a therapy-related malignancy afterwards. Um, And it did. Uh, Those with CHIP had a much higher rate of getting a therapy-related myeloid neoplasm compared to those without CHIP. And that translated into a worse overall survival compared to those without CHIP. And in fact, these individuals died not only because of therapy-related uh, myeloid neoplasms, which couldn't be rescued with chemotherapy or allo transplant, but they actually had an increased mortality from cardiovascular disease uh, that was significant as well. So, uh, so chip is a very common uh, state. It's um, extremely age-associated uh, and associated with an increased overall mortality with an increased risk of hematologic malignancies as well as therapy-related malignancies. Uh, cardiovascular disease, I didn't show, but uh, associated with uh, uh, thrombosis in the setting of JAK2 mutant chip, um, and the TET2 mutations, and now other mutations, accelerated athero- accelerate atherosclerosis in vivo um, and have altered expression of inflammatory cytokines. And given the role of these uh, inflammatory cytokines in a number of diseases of aging, were extremely actively exploring other diseases that may be um, associated or uh, have be influenced by um, uh, mutations in blood cells. And then just to to broaden this slightly, uh, this has turned out to be, I think, a larger principle in in the development of cancer in the uh, skin and the esophagus and the liver and other organs have now been examined. And there are clonal expansions that are extremely common uh, as initiating mutations. This is a study from the Sanger Center where they took blepharoplasty samples, the little sliver under the eyelid that is often removed in older individuals for cosmetic reasons. And they took hundreds of tiny little biopsies in the skin and sequenced those tiny biopsies and found loads and loads of mutations, uh, not in melan- genes that, uh, that cause melanoma, but in genes that cause uh, non-melanoma skin cancer. And if you reconstruct those mutations in a, a cartoon, as they did on the right, uh, it, the skin is almost a lawn of these clonally expanded mutant cells, and, uh, and they're bona fide mutations, p53-notch mutations, they're not, not uh, throwaway passenger mutations. Uh, same is found in the esophagus, same is found in the liver. Um, and uh, we think that this is likely a principle, you know, uh, in the lungs of smokers, wherever, uh, that will be very likely. So, that initiating mutation is very, very common. In solid organs, those clonal expansions are spatially limited, they can't expand indefinitely without uh, becoming invasive. In the blood system, hematopoietic stem cells. Circulate all our blood cells circulate, so there's no bounds on that clonal expansion. The clones can become enormous, um, but uh, but this principle of initiating mutations being very common uh, is likely true in in a, a very broad sense in human cancers. So um, I was going to tell one other uh, quick story. Um, uh, which is, uh, uh, since this is a very translationally focused uh, meeting, work that we've done on thalidomide uh, antagonists, or and thalidomide uh, um, analogs. So um, as uh, as you probably all know, thalidomide uh, be, uh, became a drug in the 1950s, Uh, after studies showing that it had antiemetic properties and hypnotic properties uh, that could be very useful. Clinically, uh, in preclinical studies and rodent models, it had no toxicity, which led it to be used very widely and uh, over the counter in many countries uh, as a treatment for morning sickness, given it seemed to be very uh, safe because it didn't have toxicity in rodent models. Um, obviously, it was found after a number of years, actually, that uh, that it caused phocomelia, these limb bud defects, which were uh, took a while to detect because patients would often not even tell their doctors that they were taking uh, thalidomide because it was just an over the counter drug. It was not ever approved in the United States due to the work of a junior pharmacologist named Francis Kelsey, who uh, blocked it in the United States, saying that there wasn't enough data, even though she was, it was one of the first jobs she got uh, at the FDA uh, and got huge pressure to approve it, um, but uh, but managed to block it for long enough that these studies came out. And so the thalidomide, toxis, or thalidomide babies were very rare in the United States, except for women who got the drug from Europe or elsewhere. Um, and the, the big prize of the FDA each year um, is the Francis Kelsey Prize, and, um, uh, and and much of the modern checks and balances we have at the FDA uh, were initiated in this era from thalidomide but it was used uh, uh, in the laboratory. It found, turned out to be a very powerful TNF-alpha inhibitor. It actually had clinical utility in erythema nodosum related to leprosy. And it was tried in a number of cancers due to the thought that it was anti-angiogenic. Um, and had marked activity in myeloma for no clear reasons and not really knowing uh, anything about the mechanism of action of the drug. And then these derivatives, lenalidomide and pomalidomide, turned out to be extremely effective drugs in myeloma, as well as some B-cell malignancies. And lenalidomide had activity in a particular subtype of myelodysplastic syndrome with deletions of chromosome 5Q, which happened to be the, the subtype of MDS that I worked on in uh, my postdoc and in my lab and so we were interested in understanding why this drug had such a great specificity but incredible that uh, thalidomide, which was one of the worst hist- you know stories in, in in the history of drug development led to lenalidomide which is um sold i think about 8 billion dollars uh, worth of lenalidomide in the last year is one of our more powerful uh, and biggest selling cancer drugs uh, uh, on the market so um an extraordinary uh, a story in, in the history of drug development. So, how does it actually work? Uh, a group in Japan, led by Hiroshi Honda, took thalidomide, made a uh, put a tag on it, pulled it down, did mass spec. We did the same with lenalidomide and uh, found that uh, lenalidomide binds in a enzyme complex that's an E3 ubiquitin ligase. E3-ubiquitin ligases are the enzymes responsible for targeted protein degradation, telling proteins to, to be destroyed in a very targeted fashion. Um, and in particular, lenalidomide binds a protein called CRBN, which is the substrate adapter for this ubiquitin ligase, the, providing the specificity of which protein is recognized uh, to be polyubiquitinated and then degraded. And the drug has an extraordinary mechanism where when the drug is present, it increases the affinity for uh, particular substrates, including a couple transcription factors, icaros and Iolos, that are B-cell transcription factors. And uh, when those transcription factors bind, they become polyubicronated and degraded. So this is a drug that leads to rapid and almost complete degradation of a couple transcription factors, which we normally wouldn't think about as druggable. Those transcription factors turn out to be master regulators of B-cell development and are essential for the survival of multiple myeloma cells, and their degradation leads to killing of myeloma cells, providing a basis for their activity in, in myeloma. And, um, and DEL5Q-MDS, uh, uh, there's a different substrate, casein kinase 1-alpha, uh, that is uh, deleted in, in heterozygous fashion in del 5 qmds So it's an essential gene and 50% of expression level is enough to sensitize cells to further degradation. So with the casein kinase story, we were very interested in really proving that this would be true. We made a mouse model of casein kinase one alpha, um, uh, conditional knockout. So we could knock out one copy mimicking Del5QMDS show that the drug works in that setting. Uh, but, um, we had a completely unsuccessful experiment. So we did a large experiment uh, uh, competing casein kinase 1-alpha knockout, heterozygous knockout with wild-type cells, treated the mice with lenalidomide and really didn't see anything, which was uh, uh, a bit depressing. Um, We then uh, did a cell culture experiment, um, Mm -hmm. which we hadn't thought to do in mouse cells. And when we treated with lenalidomide, Casein kinase one alpha levels didn't change at all, uh, which is uh, in contrast to human cells where it's uh, rapidly degraded. And then we looked at the literature and found that we couldn't find. Though these are really widely used drugs, you'd think that many people will have would have played with them, but we couldn't find good examples of people showing efficacy of these drugs in mouse models. But now we know the mechanism of the drug, um, and we know the direct target. And if we take these mouse cells and exp- uh, and they don't degrade casein kinase when we treat with lenalidomide or when we overexpress the murine cDNA for the direct target. But if we overexpress the human cDNA for CRBN, the direct target of the drug, in a mouse cell, now the drug works. Casein kinase 1 alpha levels go away when we treat with the drug. And we systematically analyzed all the amino acid changes between human and mouse. Uh, and CRBN, and if we change this one amino acid in the mouse CDNA to the human residue and express that in a mouse cell, it works just fine. Um, And uh, we actually already knew that the drug binds both the mouse and the human protein for CRBN, but that one amino acid change creates a steric bump right where the substrates bind. So we think about these drugs working as a molecular glue, where it increases the affinity between the substrate and the, um, and the E3 ligase, the substrate receptor. And this is right where the substrate binds in that tiny amino, uh, amino acid difference, uh, isoleucine to valine change, one methyl group, is enough to prevent binding of the substrate, uh, uh, at least with sufficient affinity to result in polyubiquitination and degradation. So to validate this and to make a model that we could study these drugs, we made a, uh, a mouse model where we changed that single amino acid in the germline of mice. And uh, it works very nicely. So this is a global mass spec experiment looking at all the proteins in the cell. Degraded proteins should be up here because uh, they're degraded in a, with a significant p-value. So if we treat wild type mouse cells with leadalidomide, there is nothing that's degraded. The drug's totally inert. If we treat the knock-in mice with lenalidomide, our friends casein kinase and Icarus come out. These are in blood uh, myeloid cells. IKZF3 is not expressed in these cells. And if we treat with pomalidomide, we actually knew that casein kinase 1-alpha is not expressed, uh, is not regulated by pomalidomide, but Icarus and a different uh, zinc finger protein, ZFP91 are is, uh, are degraded. So. Uh, a single amino acid change in a mouse is able to change uh, uh, from a, an organism that has no response to the drug to uh, reflecting what happens in humans uh, very nicely. So one of the other questions is is what are the effect on uh, pregnancy? This was a big field for uh, decades and uh, almost any organism you can name has probably been tested for thalidomide teratogenicity, but the response uh, um, the organisms that have teratogenicity all have the human residue, so primates and also the rabbit have uh, the human residue and have teratogenicity in response to thalidomide. The one primate that does not is the bush baby, and it has the murine residue at that location. And if we treat pregnant mice uh, with, uh, with thalidomide or lenalidomide, our first finding was that we saw dramatic pregnancy loss in mice treated with lenalidomide or or thalidomide. And it's thought that that actually might be the most common outcome to uh, pregnancies that were exposed to um, to thalidomide. There are reports of uh, of pregnancy loss, uh, uh, but this was drug that was used in the first trimester pregnancy loss is very common. Then no systematic study was done, so it's not entirely clear, but it's likely that that was the dominant cause. Uh, really elegant study from Eric Fisher's uh, group identified a transcription factor called SAL4 that's expressed in embryogenesis, and germline mutations in SAL4 lead to phocomelia, this specific limb bud defect, and thalidomide is uh, a uh, induces degradation of sal4, so we think that that's now the mechanism of the of the focomelia aspect of the phenotype. And then quickly I'll uh, run through uh, what some of the next steps are for, uh, for drug development here. Um, we wanted to understand could we generalize this, and one of the first steps was to understand the exact sequence on a target protein that's required for drug-induced degradation. And we did this by a saturation mutagenesis experiment by mutating all the key amino acids in uh, uh, IKZF3 that uh, might be uh, responsible for drug-induced degradation. And we found these are these dips are the amino acids that are essential for drug-induced degradation, and they essentially all fall within a single. C2H2 zinc finger. And the only amino acids that are required on either side are structural amino acids in the, the adjacent, adjacent zinc fingers, two cysteines and a histidine. So the core structural amino acids in this zinc finger, the cysteines and histidines that define the C2H2 zinc finger were essential, but also several other amino acids were uh, providing specificity. And that single zinc finger by itself was both necessary and sufficient for drug-induced degradation. We use this nice reporter system where the DEGRON is cloned in frame with GFP. So if you add the drug, GFP will be degraded as well, and followed by an iris Cherry as a control. So if we have the full-length ILOS or IKZF3, we add the drug and we get almost complete degradation of the, of the GFP reporter we knock out cereblon, the direct target of the drug, there's no degradation. And if we take out that one zinc finger, there's no degradation at all. If we take that zinc finger by itself in this reporter construct, we get beautiful degradation with lenalidomide and pomalidomide. If we mutate the zinc finger or knock out cereblon, no degradation. So a single zinc finger can mediate uh, uh, lenalidomide or pomalidomide-induced degradation of a protein. Uh, with uh, our colleagues in Basel, Nico Tome's lab, uh, uh, they solved a crystal structure of this uh, um, single zinc finger with cereblon bound to pomalidomide um, and could start to see the interactions that mediate this. Again, we think about this as a molecular glue where there are contacts between the drug and both proteins the substrate and the substrate receptor, um, as well as between the proteins themselves. So there's a broader protein-protein interaction surface, and the the, uh, drug is providing just a little bit of extra glue that's holding those proteins together long enough for them to be uh, ubiquitated and degraded. You can see one particular um, interaction, which is interesting, this uh, amine um, here on uh, pomalidomide and lenalidomide, which is not present on thalidomide, has a water-mediated hydrogen bond with this glutamine. And if we mutate that glutamine, and so that bond can't be uh, made, all these drugs have about equal potency. So that 10-fold uh, greater potency or greater potency of these drugs compared to thalidomide goes away with that uh, with that amino acid change. So, Zinc fingers are the largest putative class of transcription factors in our genome. Many of them are uh, relevant to human disease. If this was a broader way of degrading zinc fingers, that could be uh, very valuable. So, to first address this, we cloned um, in bulk all zinc fingers, synthesized and, and, and generated all these uh, all the C2H2 zinc fingers in the human genome into this reporter vector in frame with GFP. Uh, with an mTRA control and looked at whether any other zinc fingers could undergo drug-dependent degradation. and Particularly with pomalidomide, in some degree with lenalidomide, we found a cluster of, of zinc finger proteins, or zinc fingers that could um, uh, mediate drug-dependent degradation. Out of all those 6,500, we rediscovered Icarus and Ilos as, as uh, mediating drug-dependent degradation, but found a number of others as well. And what's particularly interesting is if we take newer compounds, different analogs of, um, of thalidomide, we get slightly different spectrum of zinc finger proteins that are degraded, providing uh, a uh, basis for developing new molecules that might lead to degradation of, of new zinc fingers. I'm not sure that we can degrade any zinc finger that we want, but uh, the universe of potentially degradable zinc fingers is, is uh, ever increasing now. We developed a mass spec assay called an immuno-MRM assay, which can detect kind of a quantitative Western blot for about ten proteins. So we could detect all these substrates at uh, at, at a much higher throughput at lower cost. So we could look at many doses, many um, cellular contexts, many different drugs, and you can start to see how these drugs differ. So CC885 is a, a more recently developed drug by Celgene. It leads to degradation of protein called GSPT1, GSPT2, um, uh, but none of the other drugs touch GSPT1. Uh, In a few weeks at ASH, there'll be some presentations in in, uh, leukemia trials where a related drug to this, CC-90009, has uh, has been used in clinical trials in in AML, including here. Uh, uh, There are uh, this casein kinase 1-alpha is degraded by lenalidomide and CC885, but not by pomalidomide or avatamide, whereas ZFP91 isn't touched by lenalidomide or CC885 and is nicely degraded by pomalidomide and avatomide. So just to say that the pattern of what proteins are degraded are very specific to the individual molecule. And just like when we use kinase inhibitors and there's a direct target and a number of off-target effects um, of that kinase inhibitor. The same will be true of degraders. Uh, A a bunch of proteins will be degraded, some of which uh, will be mediating the therapeutic efficacy, some of which may be mediating toxicity of the drugs, and we'll need to be cognizant of that uh, as we develop new uh, degraders for clinical use. I mentioned that uh, casein kinase 1-alpha and GSPT1 are substrates, but I also described a zinc finger being the key motif for degradation. So you might think there are multiple different types of motifs, but it turns out it's really only one, uh, one motif that mediates the uh mediated degradation of, of proteins. This is a nice figure that shows an overlap between the structure of casein kinase 1-alpha and the structure of icros zinc finger 2. And they both form the same beta beta loop uh, the zinc finger chelates is zinc, but the casein kinase one alpha makes the same fold. They have, a, a critical glycine at the tip of the loop. And, um, and so it's, it's a little bit easier for us to model which case, which, um, zinc finger proteins might be having this structure. It's a little bit harder to, without a crystal structure to predict what other proteins are going to have this motif, but, uh, but there's really a single structural, uh, um, motif that in these substrates that interacts with cereblon and mediates drug-dependent degradation. So for this part of the talk, I wanted to uh, show how thalidomide derivatives um, act as molecular glues that induce ubiquitination and degradation of specific substrates by the CRL4, CRBN, E3 ubiquitin ligase. They uh, target a zinc finger degron, and different thalidomide uh, derivatives target slightly different Sets of substrates for degradation. Clinically, degradation of Icarose and Iolose, or IKZF1 and IKZF3, are critical for the activity of these drugs in multiple myeloma. In DEL5QMDS, the efficacy is mediated by casein kinase 1 alpha, um, and a single non conserved amino acid uh, determines the uh, response of these drugs in human and mouse. And these are extremely uh, collaborative uh, studies, uh, including our colleagues from the MGH, uh, St. Catherine, and and Pradyatarajiran, who are here and at the Broad Institute, and happy to take any questions. Thank you so much. Wonderful presentation. It was excellent. I um, actually. You know, one of the biggest trends that that we see in our um, myeloid malignancy clinic is referral of patients who have CHIP Yeah. Um, because, you know, folks are, you know, for whatever reason doing uh, next-generation sequencing on marrows and blood, <laughs> um, and uh, these results come up. And oftentimes we don't know what to do in terms of sort of the recommendations we make, you know, we say these patients should be followed closely in heme clinic. Is the, given the, the hazard ratios you showed here, is the recommendation now to refer these patients to a cardio-oncologist or yeah. an oncocardiologist um, for closer management, uh, you know, optimizing their lipid uh, blood pressure parameters, that great, sort of thing? Great question. So first, sorry for gumming up your clinic. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, yeah, just little, just so we'll know. sure. Yeah. Well, we have a made up threshold, a semi made up threshold of a variant allele fraction of 2%. Um, that's really the cutoff of most detection. But people are we're detecting this in all kinds of ways. Somebody decides to get their exome sequenced by a company. The solid tumor sequencing that we do finds a DNMT3 mutation in the solid tumor and that does not come from the solid tumor, that comes from a blood cell that's mutated that's inside the solid tumor that was sequenced, um, or a variety of other sources. It's become quite common, so at the Dana-Farber we actually now have a CHIP clinic as of the last couple of months, so it is Memorial Mm -hmm. Sloan, Kettering, Cornell, Columbia, MD Anderson, many other centers. Not that we know a lot about what to tell them, uh, other than to follow up, and as you say, people want to talk to a doctor and talk about the risks. Um, At the Dana-Farber, Peter Libby sees all the patients with uh, David Steensmith, and so, not that there are specific guidelines for lipid management but they are working on them and at least if we can put together cohorts of individuals start to study them prospectively could start to do studies about that but um i think that's that part is really fast moving um and there's people are writing recommendations all over the place but there isn't a lot of data to support them but there are a lot of these individuals and uh, we have to figure out how to make recommendations and, and guide them um but we we are seeing them now in our Sort of translational heme clinic and uh, and in coordination with a cardiologist. Pradeep at MGH is extremely interested in this. Yeah. Ben, a wonderful presentation. It raises so many questions I could take for the next hour. But one that occurs to me is that it, are there other serabonds in the in the universe that target different uh, sections of the the zinc finger or other? Uh, conformational changes in in protein? Absolutely. So um, this is the big question right now, and we're all searching for the next ones. The second one that was found was found by another of your trainees, Deepak Najwan at UT Southwestern, who found um, these aryl sulfonamides, uh, indisilim and tazisilim, which do the same thing. They act as a molecular glue with a different... E3 ligase in the substrate adapter is called DCAF15, and they induce degradation of some splicing factors that are uh, essential proteins, lead to cell killing. So that at least shows that it's not a single instance. Yes, and uh, we are working on others uh, now. So is it is it possible to to target specific onco proteins this way? It's a fantastic question, and you know the two angles that you could think about it is take your favorite protein that you would love to degrade, MIC, and RAS, and try to degrade it, or uh, start with this mechanism and the, the molecules that work and derivatize them and see what else you degrade. And yeah. so uh, we've gone a little bit more down the ladder. And uh, so we now have all bunch of zinc finger proteins we can degrade. We don't, totally know what they do or don't know anything about what most of them do or what human disease might uh, be treated if we could degrade them. But um, I think as our armamentarium of different E3 ligases, additional chemistry gets bigger, we're going to be able to degrade yeah. a large, larger, yeah. ever larger number of protein. Nathaniel can be- give a better answer than me. Just one little question. Is there an in vitro assay for degradation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can, uh, the in vitro binding assays reflect the uh, degradation very well. We do in vitro ubiquitination assays. Um, uh, We don't do the full degradation, we don't put the proteasome in vitro, but, uh, but we can do in vitro binding and in vitro ubiquitination. Thank you so much for a lovely talk. How close are you to um, recommending these mutations as markers for selecting patients for class-specific treatment with one of the IMIDs and or using it in the um, predictive or prognostic for MDS? Yeah, it's a great question. So it turns out that, you know, the, the amazing thing of this aspect of this story is that the clinical observation got us essentially the whole way there, that... Um, DEL5Q MDS was the best predictive biomarker for degradation of casein kinase. So, in fact, the phase one clinical trial got that right because there were a handful of patients with DEL5Q MDS and they had CRs, which were pretty rare in MDS, and uh, led to a phase two trial, which led to FDA approval. So, the clinical observation was the key. Same with myeloma hundreds of trials were done in cancer and myeloma was the one that responded and other B-cell malignancies are being studied. So we've wondered whether levels of Icarus or Ilos would be predictive, but so far it's the lineage that matters and, the, and whether the, that lineage is dependent on Icarus and Ilos for the, their survival. And so the clinical observation has been great. As we develop new drugs, I think they will be opportunities for uh, predicting who will respond. Cereblon levels are very predictive. If you don't have cereblon, the drugs don't work at all. Um, And that's been extremely clear. Um, But we haven't had a good enough clinical assay yet to deploy that clinically. The antibodies have been problematic and uh, the mass spec-based assay is not not uh, in widespread clinical use. But uh, that would probably be the first one that might go into use, but uh, but we need a better assay before it's deployed. That's a fun question. So yeah. it's a little off topic, but I, you've thought a lot about um, clonal evolution in the process of this. So, how do you, do you, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people writing about stem cells and the asymmetric cell division. Topic. So to me, clonal evolution kind of argues against that type of asymmetric cell division, population and waiting, you know, mm-hmm. restriction point. Do you have thoughts about that? Uh, so people have tried to look at that, and I don't think we have a clean example. And I agree, it's been a little bit of a challenging field to translate those careful uh, observations about symmetric and asymmetric division into something relevant to human disease. Um, we think that the mutations have to be present in a stem cell because they stick around whenever we've had opportunity to look for years to decades, So, and they're big clones, so they don't go away. And that's probably different, from, example, for example, from the tiny BCR-ABLE clones that people described in the past where lots of people had BCR-ABLE clones that would go away. Those might have just been in a progenitor cell. So, These are true stem cell uh, phenotypes. They definitely have effect on competitive advantage or clonal advantage of a hematopoietic stem cell, but whether that is because of a block in differentiation, whether it's because of uh, asymmetric versus uh, symmetric cell division is not entirely clear. And I think the other thing that has muddied that field a little bit is increasing evidence of plasticity of those early progenitor cells going back to a stem cell. So even if you define that in the first day, those cells divided asymmetrically, that both of them could turn out to be stem cells down the line, and maybe these mutations play with that a little bit. Um, At the limit, these are uh, loosening the epigenetic controls, which are very price in stem cells, and allowing those stem cells to create new epigenetic states, Uh, and so that may be, in a hand-wavy way, what's really going on. One more. Um, In terms of ameliorating that, have people looked at, you know, for example, just simple things like anti-inflammatories, do they have a differential effect on mutant clones versus wild type? And can you imagine, you know, blocking mutant-specific expansion? So that's very much the goal. um, And whether inflammation is the cause or the consequence isn't entirely clear. Um, One cool observation from this recent paper I mentioned on IL-6 receptor uh, polymorphisms is that that polymorphism mitigated the risk of atherosclerosis, but not of clonal expansion. So that would be human genetic evidence that at least IL six is not the mediator of the clonal expansion. Um, so, uh, so we don't know the answer. That type of thing is what we're looking for. We don't need to cure these clones or make them go away entirely. They're very benign. They last for years. But if you could have the size of them or decrease their expansion, um, with a drug that's very benign, that's exactly what we're looking for. So, um, even something like a inflammasome inhibitor is probably too much because it's going to have infectious complications. But, um, and I think the other thing that we're thinking about clinically is that if this is mediating multiple diseases, heart disease, we're looking at rheumatologic diseases, pulmonary disease, liver disease. If there are patients who have multiple manifestations of mutant hematopoietic cells in different organs that are leading to this sort of infl- aging concept, they're, they're sick in multiple ways like many patients that we see, those are the individuals, individuals maybe that you that you intervene on with a more uh, significant therapy.